We are continuing our Equipping Hour series called God, Marriage, and Family. And uh, today's lesson will be on family in the Bible. We'll be discussing aspects and elements related to family life. So um, as we do, let me start by just opening our time in prayer. Dear Father, we are indeed grateful uh, that you have made us a part of your family. Uh, as adopted sons and daughters, Lord, you have um, brought us into your eternal home. Father, we are grateful to you for the work of salvation you've done in our lives and, and in the way that you bring us together each week to continue to sanctify us, uh, to continue to equip us for the good works that you've prepared beforehand for us to walk in, Lord. Uh, that you have unified us around your son, and we are grateful to you that you and have made us uh, an eternal family in that sense. Lord, we do pray that as we engage this topic of family, that you would continue to just uh, strengthen our understanding of your purposes and design. Um, and even as I teach this time, Lord, that you would just give me consistent words that align with your scripture. Lord, we thank you in your name. Amen. Well, as... We know we are going to be talking about family, but I want to just open up by saying that um, any Christian who's informed about what the Bible teaches in general need not look far at our world to discover that the world seems always to be moving away from biblical principles and commands and ideals. I mean, just think about it. Our culture teaches that there are many ways to God. Um, or maybe no ways to God because they would say that he does not exist. Whereas the Bible teaches there is one God and one way to him through Christ. Uh, our culture teaches that life begins whenever a woman decides it begins and has the right to abort her life at her choosing. Whereas the Bible teaches that life begins at conception and that no person has the right to take an innocent life. Our culture teaches that disciplining a child that involves corporal punishment, such as spanking, amounts to child abuse and should be outlawed. Uh, the Bible, however, teaches spare the rod, spoil the child. Uh, our culture has redefined marriage to mean the union of any two or more people who decide to live with one another for as long as they decide to stay together. Whereas the Bible teaches that marriage is created by God and is a lifelong union between one man and one woman. Now this is nothing new, right? Um, our cultures have always moved in the opposite direction of godliness. The issues we face may be different at, at any time, but the trajectory is usually the same. It starts with a suppression of the knowledge of God and then results in the rejection of godly principles for living. And the family is not unaffected by this. Um, we've got books, seminars, podcasts, programs on parenting and raising family. They exist in abundance, many of them teaching unwittingly and sometimes outrightly unbiblical approaches to parenting. Uh, think about it. Our culture would have us say, don't indoctrinate your children. Let them discover truth for themselves. 
let them explore the world um, and allow them to, through their own abilities, uh, create a worldview for themselves. Who are you to indoctrinate your children with a way of thinking? Our culture also might encourage children uh, as the wiser among us because they're unstained by the influences of the world and have yet been, um, haven't been inculcated with uh, the world's view. So they're innocent and have a, a clear perspective on life. And so we ought to give them more voice uh, in issues related to life. Uh, fathers are continuing and often continue to be um, portrayed as clueless adults who have nothing to contribute. You know, obviously in the comedies that are out there in the world, oftentimes you don't see that strong male headship father role anymore. Um, he's been relegated to the back man cave. Um, father used to know best, but not anymore. And so for believers, our culture is no help in determining God's course for our families. Um, and yet we must acknowledge that we swim in the culture, and we are not unaffected by how the culture, culture's definition of family and all that it, it relates to can influence us and influence our, our view of things. And so it's always good for us to kind of reorient our thinking or refresh our thinking and go back to the scripture and see what the Lord has to say about family life. And so that's what we'll be doing this morning. But I want to start just with a brief disclaimer. Um, families are difficult. We all come from so many different varied backgrounds. Um, our experiences of family life vary greatly. Um, I mean, you may have grown up and, and experienced a fulfilling family life, raised in a godly home, you yourself have become a Christian, and you enjoy the fruit of that. You have really become, um, you yourself are pursuing the Lord, and that's owing to the faithfulness of your parents raising you in a godly way. And you live a fulfilling life as in your own family now. And yet we also know that we experience great sadness as well as we think about family uh, as a result of perhaps loss of loved ones or even dysfunctional upbringings that we've experienced. And so we may hate family. Um, we may hate family just due to the hostility and abuse we might have experienced or the other brokenness um, growing up in a difficult family environment to where you want nothing to do with your own family anymore to this day. You may find yourself desiring to have a family, but you're single or desiring to marry and, and start your own family, but the Lord has not yet provided that for you. Um, you may be desiring to grow your family, but are having difficulty in doing that for whatever reason. Now, many of these realities, not all, but many of these result are a result of the fall. We live in a fallen world. Uh, our world is cursed. Our, our bodies are cursed. Um, and as a result, we live in brokenness. And yet, as believers, we don't live in the past of brokenness. We live in the hope of a renewed future toward which we are all at this very moment moving toward. God is a God who redeems and restores and strengthens. And so even as you consider your responses to family and what that means for you and, and the experiences that you've had, know that God is not unaware and, in fact, has ordained for his good purposes 
the family that you have and have had. And he desires for you to turn to him with all of your joys, with all of your griefs, with all of the difficulties surrounding family issues, even as you seek to redeem them, for, as he seeks to redeem them for his glory. And so even as we consider God's design for family, and as these things might stir up in you, um, just know that we won't be able to address a lot of these variety of issues that may come up um, through the course of this lesson. Um, and so uh, our aim really will be to see, let's look at what God's design for family is. And so as you see here on your outline, our objective will be to gain a biblical understanding of God's design for families in which all members of the household fulfill their roles out of a love for and obedience to God and for his glory. Um, so what we will do is we'll take a look at the Old Testament and kind of look at God's, you know, what, what we can learn from the Old Testament regarding family, and then we'll take a look at the New Testament as well uh, on just looking at the teaching of what God teaches regarding um, children, parenting, and the home. And as we engage this lesson, obviously this is an interactive lesson, so if you have questions, comments, observations, as always, feel free to um, raise those. Um, but let's just let's take then a, a look at um, what is a family, according to the according to scripture. Well, as we've already done in this series, um, I think it was a couple lessons ago, we looked at what marriage is in the Bible, and we uh, the definition that we used or some variation of it was this: marriage is a covenant involving a sacred bond between one man and one woman instituted by God and publicly entered into before God, normally consummated by sexual intercourse. And as Greg mentioned last week, I believe, it, this is what constitutes the beginning of a family, a husband and a wife joining together in this union. This is the, this is the start of a family. But building on this definition, we will define family in the following way. It is primarily one man and one woman united in matrimony, barring the, barring the death of a spouse, plus normally natural or adopted children, and secondarily any other persons related by blood. I'll reread that for you. It's primarily one man and one woman united in matrimony, uh, barring the death of a spouse, plus normally natural or adopted children, and then secondarily, any other persons related by blood. So in the innermost circle, a family consists of a man. Yes, one more time. One more time. I know it's, it's, it's Kostenberger's definition, not mine. So you can. <laughs> um, Kostenberger is the author of the book we're using, by the way. Um, primarily, one man and one woman united in matrimony barring the death of a spouse, plus normally natural or adopted children, and secondarily any other persons related by blood. <coughs> One more time. <laughs> Good. All right. Great. So, so, so simply put, you know, in, in the innermost circle, a family consists of a husband and a wife and any children, should they adopt or have them naturally, generally speaking. 
Um, family can expand beyond this when you consider anyone else related by blood. And we'll look at some of the, the ways in which Old Testament families lived. Um, so any, any questions or any rejoinders about that definition? Randy. My mind went immediately to us being related by the blood of Christ. Yeah, and I mean, we'll, we'll talk, uh, when we get to the New Testament overview, we'll, we'll discuss a little bit about uh, Christ's view of the family and as it relates even to our union with one another. Um, but yes. So, let's look at the Old Testament, um, the Old Testament conception of a family, and let's look particularly at the Israelites. Uh, given their common ancestry, the Israelites uh, perceived themselves as a large extended kinship group, right? Uh, extended beyond just the immediate family, but a growing, growing nation of people. And so there are four major terms in, in the Old Testament that relate to family, four major terms. Uh, the first one would be a people. The Israelites were a people. And, and this really encompasses a large population of, of people, such as a nation or an ethnic group. But uh, it's a broad term that generally refers to a group of individuals sharing a common identity, culture, language, or nationality. Uh, second, you have what would be considered a tribe. Uh, typically refers to a social group consisting of a smaller number of families and clans coming together. And smaller than a nation, um, but they inhabit usually specific regions in, in areas of land, you know, areas of nations. And then you also have a clan. A clan would be a smaller group of people united by kinship and often tracing their lineage through common ancestors. And um, members, they usually share the last name or surname um, and have specific traditions and rituals that they would um, participate in. And then we have family. And, and family could also be considered, uh, in, in the term used in, in Hebrew, uh, is um, a, a father's house, a father's house. So family would also be called a father's house. And this was the smallest social unit and refers to a group of individuals usually related by blood, a marriage, and adoption. And these families often shared a household. Uh, they'd work together to meet their common needs. You know, they'd have a communal area that they lived in a house together. They all contributed to the welfare of the home. And these were usually the nuclear family, as we understand it, parents, children, and extended, uh, such as grandparents and grandchildren, and sometimes unmarried um, family members who were adults. And this is the term that's most relevant to our study. Uh, as the Israelite household often consisted not only of the uh, husband, father, and children, I've already said that, the extended grandchildren and unmarried sons and daughters, but this is the term that we want to focus on. Not so much all of the others, but um, the home of the father is kind of what we want to look at. Now, like many Near Eastern cultures, Israelite families were centered around the father. And there are some terms that we can apply to um, kind of give uh, some different ways of looking at how the, how the home was viewed. And the first of those terms would be patrilineal, patrilineal. So, Patra means father, and lineal would be, there's a lineage assigned. So, and this, what, what this really means is that the official descent of families was always traced through the father's line. So there's a patrilineal approach to a, a father-centered 
approach to uh, considering genealogies and, and the line of the family. And it was also patrilocal. And what that means is that the married women would usually and generally become a part of the husband's household rather than the reverse. The husband would not become part of the, the wife's household. It would be the reverse. The married woman would become a part of the husband's household and by virtue of then also take on the husband's last name. Um, and so that would be the, uh, the sense of uh, patrilocal. And then, get your ears up, patriarchal, right? We have patriarchal. Uh, the, this is basically meaning that the, the home was, that the father was in charge of the home, patriarchal. Now, anybody have problems with that term? Because <laughs> it's a term that's certainly been hijacked by our culture. Uh, so patriarchal, this term generally is just another example of how our culture is not helpful in helping us to define an under, a biblical understanding of what the family is about. Uh, it's been discredited. And often, you know, and in some situations, there's justification for the discrediting of the, uh, certain views of the head of the household because there are abuses of that position. So, you know, the, the world's definition of patriarchal would be this. Rather than being a, a, you know, a husband who leads his home, it's a society controlled by men in which they use their power to their own advantage. So when people hear the term patriarchal, um, that in today's culture, it's often often always carries this negative connotation. So the authors of the book suggest another term to help us you know, reorient our thinking a little bit to what's more biblical. And that would be the term patricentrism. Patricentrism. The father is the central figure in the home as head of the household from whom the whole family radiates. The father is the central figure in the home. And this really reflects God's design in creating man and woman. As we've already explored, when God created man, he created man first. He commanded him to subdue the earth and to rule over it. And then he made a helper suitable to him to then be able to fulfill that commandment. The Lord recognized that man needed a helper to help fulfill that command to rule the earth. And so... Um, even there you see that God's design in making the man the head of the home um, and then providing a suitable helper is in, in keeping with his design for what he had created them in the first place. Now, while the father ruled the household, the Old Testament focuses not so much on his power and privilege as the head of the home, but rather on the responsibilities associated with his headship. It is not so much that the father has this special privilege and therefore must be, um, others are all subservient to him to fulfill his role. Rather, it is not about his power and privilege, but the focus is on his responsibilities that are associated with his headship. And so let's look at some of those old, uh, responsibilities of the father. So the Old Testament view of fathers. What were some of the responsibilities as the head of his home in the Old Testament, um, particularly in his Israelite families? Um, but before I go, any questions at this point? Any comments? All right. So what are some of the Old, Old Testament father's responsibility over his entire family? Well, first and foremost, he was to personally model devotion 
to God. Uh, he himself was to be a man who pursued God on his own um, and, and would model that in front of his family. Uh, and, and some of the ways in which that, you know, we think about that, just the modeling of that in a day-to-day activity of, of a father himself pursuing the Lord. You know, you've, you've heard a lot of the things that children learn in their homes are more caught than taught, right? It's the observing of the father and the observance of what life for him is like on a daily basis. It's not so much the momentary times of taking the children aside, although those can be helpful to spend particular time with them. It's the habit and life of the father himself that probably has the greater influence in the lives of his children and and wife. So personally modeling devotion to God. Uh, One would say another responsibility would be leading his family in the national festivals such as Passover. So when they would perform the Passover, it would be the father who would lead in that event. Father was also devoted to instructing his family in the traditions of scripture. Um, calling them back to the word of God to show what God had done in Israel's past and, and continuing to teach and passing on those traditions so that they would not be lost. And just practically speaking, he was also responsible for managing the land in accordance with the law. Uh, he would provide for the basic needs of the family, whether that be food and shelter and clothing. He'd be responsible for protecting his home from outside threats. And then he would also be representing the family in official assemblies. Um, so any uh, meetings uh, within the clans or tribes that were a part of, of the history of Israel, the father would represent the family in those events. Um, and then just generally maintaining a family member's well-being, uh, being involved in making sure that they are well taken care of, uh, including health. Um, and then also implementing the decisions that were made at the clan level or at the tribe level. Uh, that you know, decisions would be made for, for the entire nation or for smaller uh, tribes or clans and the father would be responsible for implementing those within his own home. So those were just some of the responsibilities in general that a father had um, for his family. And then we have some particular responsibilities toward his sons or son, son or sons. So Old Testament father's responsibility towards their sons. One would be, and and he would usually do this in collaboration with his wife, is the naming of the children. You know, even as Adam, when he he was first created and then God created the animals, God vested with him the responsibility to name all the animals, and that that continued on in, in his responsibility to name his children. Uh, he was responsible for uh, making sure that his sons were circumcised on the eighth day. And then, as it relates to his relationship with his son, he was to have compassion for his son and love his son. He was to be a, a, a man who would have compassion and, and love for his sons. And nurturing his son's spiritual development not only through the modeling that we've talked about earlier in his own devotion to God, but also in particular in teaching and in, in disciplining his son in godliness and godly living. He also had the responsibility to guard his own ethical conduct um, so as not to unknowingly involve his son in devious schemes and activities. He was to keep his own life and ethical conduct pure 
so as not to cause his family to fall into sin as well. And the father was responsible for disciplining his son. Um, and then just more uh, in a general sense is managing his household's uh, affairs in such a manner that upon his death, they could be moved on to the firstborn son in a smooth fashion. There was to be some proactive planning to make sure that this transition would um, be smooth upon his own death. And then arranging the son's marriage. Uh, I'm sure some of his parents would love to do that, right? <laughs> um, but nonetheless, this was their responsibility. They were to uh, arrange their son's marriages. So there's a lot, lot that the father had responsibility for over, his, over the family in general, over his own sons, and then even some particular responsibilities over the daughters. Uh, he was to protect his daughters from male predators who might, uh, you know, violate her and so that she would be married off as a virgin. So he was responsible for protecting her in that sense and also arranging for her marriage. And as a result, he was to provide for her a dowry uh, so that upon her being married, she would have something to bring along with her uh, into her new family. He would also provide security for his daughter in case the marriage fell apart and failed. And then also a little bit of instruction, instructing his daughter in scripture. So those are some of the Old Testament responsibilities a father had over his family, um, over his sons, and over his daughters. Um, any thoughts or questions on any of that? All right. Well, so in that case, let's turn to the mother in the Old Testament. What what can we say about mothers? Well, let's back up a little bit and just be reminded of a few things as we look at Scripture, as we, as we think about what we know Scripture teaches. Is that woman was created in the likeness of God. Uh, she is of equal standing before God. Uh, there's no um, value. She's not less valuable than man. Um, she was created in the likeness of God. And so she was called alongside her husband to subdue the earth as well. She was, she was to carry out that responsibility alongside her husband. And as she was taken out of the man, she was created from him, they share a union. I mean, obviously in their consummation, they are now one flesh, but being from the man, uh, they share a oneness together as well. Um, and so the relationship between a father, uh, between a husband and a wife are complementary, right? It's not a role of a slave, master slave or a master subservient person or however you want to view it. It's, it's a complementary role. God had commanded Adam to subdue the earth, created him for that purpose. Then he created for him a, suit, a helpable, suitable helper, uh, all indicating that this was all to be, uh, this command to subdue the earth was uh, to be accomplished by both. But as we also understand, there's a, there's a different uh, order of relationship between a husband and a wife. And so it, with that, there come certain vulnerabilities on the side of, of the mom or the, the wife. Uh, she was vulnerable to divorce. And being that she was dependent upon her husband to care for her, a woman who would be divorced uh, would find herself in a very, very difficult situation 
in the in the Old Testament time, and, and divorce just um, was something. Again, even as we talked about the Old Testament father's responsibility, he was to um, protect and provide for that security for his daughter. Um, but there's vulnerability, right? Uh, polygamy uh, occurred in the Old Testament, um, so being um, you know found in that sort of uh, situation was very, very common. Uh, not very common, it was common. It occurred, let me back up, it occurred in the Old Testament. I don't think it was very common, but it did occur. Um, so there was a vulnerability there. And just widowhood, um, you know, the loss of a husband put a uh, woman who had now lived under her husband's care and responsibility leaves her vulnerable in that sense as well. So given their, the structure, there's, there's, a, there's some challenges there for, for the position that women find themselves in. But even there, the Lord has ordered this in such a way that um, the Old Testament father was to be ready to protect and provide for these uh, situations if they should arise. The idea that women were treated as a father or husband's legal property, you know, you, you get this idea that that's what people went, who, who claim um, foul as re regards the term patriarchy, you know, that a woman just belonged to the husband uh, and she was to serve him in whatever capacity uh, he desired. This idea that, that um, women uh, were tr treated as a, a legal property does not bear out in scripture at all. In fact, uh, one of the authors that are quoted in the book we read, his name is Daniel Block, argues this, and I'll just read a quote. To view women in ancient Israel as chattel, uh, legal property, of their husbands and fathers is to commit a fundamental fallacy. The failure to distinguish between authority and ownership, legal dependence and servitude, functional subordination and possession. The consistent and unequivocal unequivocally patricentric worldview of biblical authors cannot be denied. The idea that, you know, there is a central father figure, um, that can't be denied, but this does not mean that those under the authority of males were deemed their property. To the contrary, in keeping with the radical biblical ideal of servant leadership as a whole, husbands and fathers were to exercise authority with the well-being of their households in mind. So, this idea that you know husbands own their wives it, it it does not bear out particularly when you consider a husband's role as was Christ's role for us he was a servant leader a servant leader someone who cared for and led his family well um, not as a despot who had you know his wife as a servant for himself so the role of the mother is not one of simply you know waiting for a command from her husband to carry out certain rule, uh, certain duties. But she does carry with her certain responsibilities. So let's look at some of those responsibilities as uh, a mother. And in fact, any questions before I continue on or comments? Jeff. Now, obviously, the, this um, <clears throat> patrocentric role wouldn't take much for it to get out of God's design with the uh, sin nature of, of man. So I'm sure there was that uh, there was a lot of um, 
living outside of the design that God had made for uh, the man's role in, in this situation, obviously, would, would there have been a lot of complications in it from the, from the early, from the onset, I would imagine. Yeah. Men, men taking advantage of that role. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it doesn't take long in Scripture to find that happening, right? When we look at Genesis 3 in the fall, um, an abdication of responsibility and calling is what ultimately resulted in us being cursed in such a way that that curse continues to work its way out in our culture and world. Um, so absolutely, is that what you're getting at? So the difficulties that we face, it's... it's this is designed, uh, the system is designed for a man that's, that's uh, keeping in line with God, with God and his, his true role in the family. Yes. examples to support your women are not chattel. You have uh, the daughters of Zelophehad who come to Moses and mm -hmm. God rules in their favor mm -hmm. that they are citizens and have rights in the community. And then even the book of Ruth shows you know, that there's there's avenues for women to pursue their legal rights and be part of the community. Those are just two quick things yeah, in my no, That's good. Yeah, but, and absolutely, you know, um, I mean, the, the way that the world has corrupted and we can, you know, and even our own thinking about these things uh, needs cleaning up. Um, that's why we want to go back to the scripture and see how God has originally intended it to be. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, by his grace and independence upon him, you know, our, our goals are to, in whatever capabilities and possibilities we have, given the unique and variety of ways our families exist, you know, in some cases we can't re- uh, we can't reset some things. Uh, there's just brokenness that cannot be fixed. Um, but certainly, yeah, the, the outworkings of, of our sin natures still impact us to this day, even in our own Christian homes. Um, so, but it is, again, uh, you know, a, a, believing, a, a believer who's pursuing Christ humbly will seek these things out in a way, independence upon him as well. Um, but we, yeah, we need to be aware of the fact that we are all fallen in that the impact of sin still bears its ugly head in our homes. Um, so, any more questions or comments? So let's look at then some of the responsibilities of the mother. Um, and, you know, Proverbs 31 is a good place to go, is kind of the, you know, uh, passage that speaks to some of the um, blessings and responsibilities of motherhood. But generally speaking, the responsibilities of the mother centered around the home. Um, she was to provide food, clothing, and shelter. Uh, she was to raise the children, particularly in those early years, those young years, during the early years of life, uh, and where over time, increasingly, as the child grew, the father would take on more responsibility of spending time as the child grew into adolescence. But generally, the mother would be the one who would primarily take care of the young. Um, Tabby, you have a question? Uh, 3B, oh, Old Testament view of mothers. Yes. Yep. Perfect. You're welcome. Um, also, being that the home was the primary place for education, mothers were often providing the instruction in the home. Um, and, uh, and again, as I've already said, Proverbs 31 is, is a place to read, um, you know, and 
let's read that since I have yet to bring in a, a passage of scripture, so let's do that. Um, for, turn with me to Proverbs 31, and we'll just look at a short section of, it, of an example uh, of, you know, a godly woman in that regard. And would some of you be willing to read um, verses 10 and on until I tell you to stop? Because it is a longer section. Uh, let's uh, read through verse 19. Would some of you be willing to read the top of, uh, 10 through 19? The woman who fears the Lord, and next to the wife who can find she is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. <coughs> she is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff, and her hands hold the spindle. Thank you. You see a very industrious woman who, um, whose aim and goal is to bless her home, uh, to strengthen uh, her family through the food that she provides, uh, to, to uh, bolster their financial security through the, uh, the business and commerce she takes place in through the culture. Um, she reaches out not only to her family, but those outside of her family um, in, in seeking to bless those who are uh, in difficult circumstances. And so, um, short of, she herself is carrying out this responsibility and the duty to bless the world, to subdue the earth and, and um, rule over it in that regard, and providing for her family and providing for her home. Um, and her husband trusts in her. So uh, those were some of the responsibilities uh, for mothers. And obviously, uh, not this presupposes it, but procreation, right? We see that obviously all this discussion about children um, or <coughs> the home and, and taking care of our children, there's a general expectation uh, for married couples uh, who are able to, to have children and thereby fulfilling the command to be fruitful. And obviously a command that Adam couldn't fulfill on his own. God provided him a helper suitable for that end as well. Um, but this is not to unfairly single out couples who are struggling to have children or don't have children even at this point, but desire to. But the prevailing norm is that married couples would have children. So, now, about children. What were their responsibilities? Pretty straightforward. Listen up, kids. Uh, the fifth commandment, Exodus twenty twelve. Is a, a child want to read that? Anyone? <laughs> you should have it memorized. I'm sure. James wants to. All right, James. I'll read it for you. How's that? James and others, all of us, really. Honor your father and mother. This is Exodus twenty twelve. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Honor your father and your mother. The first and foremost responsibility of children was to respect their parents. 
It was to obey them. It was to honor them. And this includes both mother and father. Um, and it's the first commandment in, in the uh, Ten Commandments that is of the horizontal nature, right? The first four commandments have to do with our relationship with God. And then the fifth commandment is our relationship to one. It begins the uh, commands as it regards our relationships with one another. And the first one is for, father, uh, for children to honor their mother and father. This has no qualifications, meaning that respect is owed, that respect is due them. Um, it, it, there's no uh, qualification for that. And it's a, it's a respect that carries beyond our home life. We respect our parents into their death all the way. It's not just uh, while we're under their headship and, and rule in our homes. So there's no qualifications for it. It's to just be, you're to respect and honor your parents. And we'll look in the New Testament again, some of the ways that works out. Um, but generally speaking, the children also carried with them certain responsibilities with their, in their home where they contributed to the wellness of the home, such as doing chores, cleaning toilets. Um, they didn't have them back then. But, um, but the reality is of just contributing to the wellness of the home. Children are not just simply uh, lodgers, you know, who are paying, they don't, I don't know of any children who pay rent, you know, um, but they are not just simply lodgers who get to enjoy the fruits of the labor of the parents, they're to contribute to the wellness of the home. Uh, and so they perform chores around the house, picking the, you know, vegetables out of the gardens and bringing them in. And then later in life, providing care for their aging parents, providing that care for their aging parents. Um, we're not to abandon our, our parents as they grow older, but we're to be involved in caring for them even as they have cared for us all of our lives. Now, as it regards children, too, I want to go back to the father's responsibility as it relates to children. Um, and, and with that, would you please turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. In verses uh, 6 through 9. Would somebody be willing to read Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 through 9? Uh, Rodney? Uh, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. <coughs> diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be front as frontless. Thank you. So here we have this general uh, encouragement, admonishment, or encouragement for parents to continue to instruct and teach their children in the way that they should walk in this world. Um, and, and the opportunities for that are um, when should you do this? Anytime when it's possible, it seems, right? When you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise. Um, you shall teach them diligently to your children um, all, that, all that he has commanded us and all that he has taught us. Parents in general, and fathers in particular, were tasked with teaching their children all that the Lord had done and commanded. And the reason for that is so that they would not forget his deliverance of them from Egypt. Um, in Psalm 78, 5 uh, through 8, we read this. 
he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The aim was to continue to remind all those growing up in these homes the work that God had accomplished on their behalf, that they would remember him, that we would keep his commandments, and so that they would not stray away from him. And so it fell upon the responsibility of the father in particular to teach these things to his children. Uh, Proverbs 22.6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now this verse, Proverbs, I'm sure you've heard it before, is one of those verses where we think that if I do all the right things, my child's going to follow the Lord. Um, but there's been some discussions about this passage that seems to indicate that this is not so much a promise as it is a warning. Um, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. In other words, those young years, those early years, become very formative. And they, they establish patterns and roots of behavior and thinking that as we grow older, we are less inclined to abandon. And so it's important that even in these early stages of life, in these early years, the instruction and the life and example that we live in front of our children will impact them for better or for worse. As they grow old, they will not depart from these ways. So it's not a promise that if you just get, you know, if you teach your kids all the right Awana lessons and, and uh, give them all the right verses to memorize that they'll become Christian. Rather, it's whatever you do in these early years, that's going to ha- leave an imprint on how they then grow in this world, and, and it will be hard for them to abandon those ways. Um, does that make sense? So there's a lot on our plate. There's a lot of, uh, as fathers, as husbands, um, there's a lot for us to consider as we, regard, as we consider our own children, and how what we do, what we say, how we teach can have a great impact on them. Now, we have a great textbook, um, particularly in the book of Proverbs, on some very practical ways to help teach our children, if you need help with that. Um, But there's certainly no um, absence of resources available on how how can I lead my family um, in in these ways and teach them in the way of God. Taba? There is a long uh, list of verses I can provide for you afterwards. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. that'd be yeah, awesome. Yeah. Just like to add, kind of add to that point about um, the teaching of children, like you know, really um, targeting those, pinpointing those um, formative years. Yes. Uh, like I work with kids, you know, for like past like nine years now, in different roles and capacities, and I'm currently a paraeducator for like um, Elk Grove High School District. I'm typically working with pre-K kids now. Oh. And like one thing I'm kind of recognizing and seeing is like how, like you know, just like you said, how. In a certain sense, malleable um, they are in mm-hmm. terms of like you know you being able to kind of like you know influence and 
um, instill certain values in the kids, you know? Yep. And so, like, you know, even, like, you know, you can't control how parents, you know, parent their kids. But you can also, when you are, you know, blessed to work in a space like that, you can kind of use, like, those sort of touch things. That kind of stuff stays with kids as well, too. But, like, you know, just like, like you said, like, I agree with what the scriptures say based on, like, actual things I've seen and experienced, you know, working with young people, like, you know, being able to teach them, like, you know, give them those nuggets of, you know, valuable <coughs> life lessons, you know? Um, yeah, absolutely. That will carry them. And I remember being a kid, you know, learning stuff, like, too, from my parents and, like, you know, other people, too. Yeah. You know, um, so yeah, it really is important. Like, yeah, absolutely. Be consistent with that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah certainly. And I'll, I'll be happy to provide some of those verses for you then. Um, well, good. Any, any questions on that, even as we take a brief turn over to the New Testament to see what the Lord has to say to us about from the New Testament? All right, well, so let's look at then the New Testament. Um, now, Jesus is teaching on the family, right? Did Jesus affirm marriage? Did, did he affirm children? Absolutely, right? We, we see plenty of examples of, of Scripture where Jesus takes special notice of children. Uh, he affirms marriage. However, he also recognized that marriage and family is not ultimate, right? He often um, put in contrast our devotion to him and our devotion to family to highlight that um, family is not ultimate. Uh, our family is not ultimate. Our family life is not ultimate. Instead, devotion to him and the community of believers often transcend these natural relationships. Um, how many of you, you need to raise your hand, but I certainly experience this, experience a greater intimacy among the body of Christ than you do within your own families? Yeah. Um, there's a uniqueness to the body of Christ that we often don't experience in our own homes due to the unity we have in Christ. And it brings a special bond to believers to live in the context of a wonderful church like River City, uh, where we share life in such a way that we cannot share with our own family members. And, and there's almost a, a, a break that we feel when we become Christian, that there's a, it's a unique thing that they'll never understand until they come to Christ. Um, but the unity that we share with one another is often sweeter and deeper and more loving than those relationships within our own home, even in cases where our home life is, is wonderful. You know, we have great parents who are, who are good, upstanding citizens, and yet that connection that we share with one another through Christ, we don't share with our own family members, and that, that often creates um, sometimes a loneliness, even within our, in the context of our own homes. Um, but Jesus said, family is not ultimate. In Luke 12, 26, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, we just looked at all of the responsibilities of a father and a mother, and obviously the point to this is not to say just abandon your family at the cost of following me, but it ought to look that way when it comes to our devotion to Christ, that there would be no question in our lives as to, to whom we are devoted mostly. Who is our primary devotion? Is it our family or is it um, Christ himself? 
So it's not to say that we're to abandon our families, but rather that when our devotion to one another is challenged, our devotion to Christ should win out. Even Jesus places his father's work above his parents at times, right? Um, when he had run off uh, when, in his early years. In Luke 22, 49, we read Jesus responding to his parents, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? He had prioritized the work of God in this moment over and against what, um, over against his parents, although he still did submit to them in those situations. So, in fact, true discipleship is made evident by one's devotion to Christ over and against one's devotion to family. And Jesus also had a particular view of children. And, and oftentimes, children became an example of what faith should look like. Uh, think about this. Children are in a vulnerable position, right? There's a dependence and trust that is characteristic of children that they're even unaware of, even as they're growing up in their own homes. There's a dependence and trust that they just have. Um, and in Matthew 18, 1 through 4, we read, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus used children as an example of what, it's lo- what it should look like as we humble ourselves in approaching God himself. Now, we know our children. We know that oftentimes they are not humble. They don't exhibit these characteristics. So what's, what's the point here? Well, this is not to say that our children are innocent, um, innocent, unsinful people who provide a great example of what fidelity to Christ looks like, but rather it's their low status. They're dependent. They're needy. Um, they require care. And it's in that sense that children become an example of what our relationship with God ought to look like. Uh, we're needy. We're dependent. We need care. But Jesus had a great um, um, you know, children were precious in God's sight, and he takes special notice of them. They are not to be seen as an inconvenience or a barrier to self-fulfillment, but they are rather precious in his sight and examples of how one ought to approach God. And we all know that children do sin, and so we have some commands given to children as well. So, can I get one of the kids to read Ephesians 6, 1 through 3? Anyone willing? How about a parent? You've probably got it memorized. All right, Jeff. Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. The word obey is simply this, to hear, under, or to listen attentively, or by implication to heed or conform to a command 
or authority. You're simply to obey your parents. Uh, it's unqualified. Uh, short of your parents asking you to do something sinful, you're to do what they tell you. Um, it's, not, um, it's not qualified. It's simply do what you're being told to do. Now, trusting that your parents are asking you to do something that is in keeping with their responsibilities and care for you, uh, there are no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Um, you're to just simply obey your parents. Uh, this is fundamental to a child-parent relationship. And this is really uh, also a place where we learn about the structure of authority, right? A, a father and a mother are the authority over their children. The children live under that authority and are to obey that authority. And if that is not managed well, how will that play out in the society at large if those children go into the world not having learned how to submit to authorities in their lives? It creates chaos. And so, children, for you, this is a time of practicing how to submit to authority, particularly when you disagree with that authority. Um, because it's really, you're, you're in a safe environment right now that allows you to practice how to put yourself under those who are over you. Because when you go into the world, that's what you'll be doing as well. You'll be learning to live under those who have higher status, who have higher authority over you, and we need to respect that authority. We needn't always agree with that authority, but we need to respect that authority and obey that authority. Um, you know, I think of the world of politics is a great place to see where we have levels of authority where we certainly don't agree with the authority, but we still show the honor and respect for the position that that person holds. Um, and so it's a great time for you as children to be practicing that. Just not, you know, we know we have rebellious hearts. Uh, there's, that, there's a lot going on there, but just for the purposes of even equipping yourself to be a better citizen. Learning to live now under that authority is a wonderful thing to practice. But we also read that they're to obey in the Lord, right? There's, there's a sense in which this obedience is ultimately driven by a motivation to obey the Lord himself. Um, which also indicates that an unwillingness to obey that authority is really an unwillingness to obey God. It is God who calls you as children to live and under the authority of your parents and to obey them. And you not doing that is really a reflection of your rebellion against God himself, who is the one who established that authority over you. So your ultimate problem then, when you seek to disobey your parents, your ultimate problem is a problem with God himself. And so that is where you should start even in your own heart as you reflect about your relationship with your parents. Um, and, and we read here, um, and elsewhere we read about uh, this, this um, children, well, Ephesians 6, it says, children of their parents in the Lord, for this is right, right? In God's economy and design, he has established a parent-child relationship in which parents are called to shepherd their children, and the children are called to submit and obey them. It's your Christian duty, um, and it's directly connected to a promise, that it may go well with you and that you will live long on the earth. And just consider Israel. When Israel obeyed the Lord, there were blessings. When they disobeyed, there were difficulties and hardship. Um, any, any questions on children? 
Stacy. You know, even as I know you walked in late, but um, not that I happened to, I just happened to notice. <laughs> just happened to notice. <laughs> no commentary. Um, but, you know, the difficulties that we all face within our own families are very immensely. And so it's, it's even these things now, as we face our own shortcomings, that we do so in dependence upon God himself and turning to him and, and redeeming what's left of the time we have with our children. You know, this is a time of... of reorienting and reaffirming the things that God teaches and and aligning ourselves with that even in you know in the waning moments that we might have with our children so this isn't a lost cause we you know we grieve and repent over the things that we've done wrong but we hopefully reorient our ways uh, toward more of a godly model um, so any other Lori in thinking about a child's responsibility you said children obey your parents in the Lord, it's unqualified, just do it. Um, but we all know there's lots of children who aren't saved yet, so they're right. not going to do it in sure. the Lord. Right. Um, so will you speak to that? Yes, I will. Um, and that's, that's a great point because, yeah, we have, um, I have a list of verses here somewhere. We, we have um, the reality, yeah, that we have unsaved children who are just in the flesh, you know. But it's still a command that God gives to children, right? It, it is, they're not excused uh, by virtue of not being believers um, of just having, they can just disobey this command. Because it's a very thing that God will hold them accountable to anyway. They, they will, um, it is one of the commands, um, I mean, one of the results of the fall that speaks of later when the world continues to deteriorate. One of the things that is highlighted as a sin that is being um, judged is disobedience to parents. I, I forget the verse. I thought I had it written down. Um, so the call doesn't go out just to believers. This is God's design for the family at large and in a whole. So the accountability is still there, and it will be a thing for which you are judged as a child if you don't obey your parents. Um, you will recognize in that that it's difficult and hard because of our sinful natures, which is hopefully a call to the gospel to turn to him and seek the strength necessary to do the thing that he calls you to do. But you will be judged for it um, if you are outside of Christ. Um, does that touch on that yet? Taba? Um, I think it's important for us as um, parents um, to be able to model um, visually uh, the 
natural order, in the divine order, that God intended. Just like Timothy believes in how like family has an order of operations. Yes. Uh, and kind of like what you said, like um, we are as parents when we are parents, um, kind of like close representation in flesh to God for our children. Yeah. In a certain respect, and so there's an order of the way we uh, correct them. There's an order of the way we give commands. There's an order of the way. We we forgive and we show love to um, mm -hmm. our kids is the way we provide for our kids. And so um, to your point, we can't control um, what's in that child's heart as far as like, you know, then making that personal decision um, to, you know, make the wrong that we choose to make, uh, then, you know, accepting Christ into our lives and things of that nature. But um, what we can do is look at this model, um, what a Christ life, you know, um, Christ influenced life looks like, you know, in our day to day. Right. And, um, Hopefully, you know, it's like, you know, we raise them up in, as a child and we teach them these values and we explain, like, you know, there's a reason why I correct you the way I do. There's a reason why I have the rules set up the way I have them. It's not, um, you know, as long as we have the intention of just, like, really, like, sustaining them and doing what's best for them, and, you know, based on what we know God wants us to do. That's why I think that, that puts us in the best position to be able to hopefully encourage and influence, you know, right. them to make that choice for themselves down the line. Also, it's understanding that you know everyone perceives things differently. Everyone has different, you know, um, understandings of life. So you know, we can't make that choice for them. We can hope that you know that um, they make that choice. But at the end of the day, it's like you know, all we can do is model it. You know, and I think for me, like as a visual learner, like you know, when I could, you know, as a child, like be able to kind of like recognize and see and trust in um, what's being told to me. Because um, a lot of times, you know, kids, you know, they don't, they don't listen when they see hypocrisy, when they see like different right. things, right? But like, if I could be consistent with like how I'm giving that um, example, how I'm, you know, um, you know, modeling that and like, right. really kind of adhering to like the order that it should be. And, and, like, we, as, and we as parents, you know, we serve as that first a visual authority in their lives, which obviously then becomes a reflection of hopefully a godly way, teaching children how to submit ultimately to the Lord himself as their ultimate authority, right? So that modeling. Jeff? Here, the difference between obey and honor. Like, verse one is obey your parents, and then verse two, honor your father. But I think yeah. kids can may not see the, I was the gonna, significance between those two things. Yeah, I, there is there is a difference. Um, the obey is just simply to um, to uh, do what you're being told to do, and to honor means simply to just revere, you know, to respect, uh, hold parents in high regard. Um, and so really the obedience that is coming out of it is done out of honor to them. You know, it's not simply just, it, it's because you respect them. Obviously, we want to be respectful parents, but there's a sense in which you do so because you respect them. As, as in our relationship with the Lord, we, we obey him because we know he's good and right and true in all that he does. So does that answer your question? Chin Wei? Just kind of in the bigger context of it, like, Right after this, it talks about fathers who don't provoke your children to anger. It doesn't give qualifications either. It doesn't say, oh, well, only when your kids are this and that. Right, right, right. right before that, it talks about, you know, wives submit to your husband, and then also, you know, husbands love your wives. So I think I think in, in the big, big scheme of things, it's kind of like in the bond servants, you know, obey your earthly masters. It doesn't say only, only when they're reasonable or yeah. something like that. So it sounds like in this whole Ephesians cha um, chapter, it's more like, like we're modeling our relationship with Christ, I think, as as Tyler or whoever else said. Like, it's like as children we have a heavenly father, you know. As as wise we have, it's like we're um, like submitting to the, the we're like a bride of Christ, right? And like 
husbands, like we're basically, so we're modeling God in every single interaction we have, whether it's, you know, master or father or son or daughter. So I think that's, it's not just like a burdensome command, I think as, as Stacy said, but it's like, wow, we're actually trying to model Christ in every single one of our relationships. Yeah, no, it's, and we'll just, I'll, I'll make some comments to that um, and just end there because we're out of time, unfortunately. But um, yeah, there's there's certainly a sense in which, I mean, one of the things we wanted to look at is just the importance of the role of fathers, right, to not provoke children to anger. Um, and there's a variety of ways that that can take place. I was going to ask for suggestions, but in time, you know, there, there's a sense in which I'll just run through some of these things. That, you know, fathers can provoke their children to anger, and parents in general can. Um, by being overbearing, overprotecting, showing showing favoritism, um, discouraging all the time, and never complimenting your children and the things that they do, failing to sacrifice for your own children, you know, just treating them as your slaves, you know, just do whatever I want, um, but failing to sacrifice and giving up of your own good, you know, things, rights even, if you will, quote unquote. Um, pushing them into to adulthood before their time, or using love as a tool for rewards. Uh, failing to discipline them. That's not loving, you know. That can actually breed resentment in, parent, uh, in children. Pa children who have parents who don't care enough about them to kind of deal with their wrongdoings. Um, kids know they do wrong, and to have a parent who doesn't treat, you know, deal with that, that can breed resentment in a child toward their parents. So even though discipline is often looked at negatively, that's a positive reality of discipline, um, that it, it breeds love in the home. Uh, so anyway, um, just again, we're out of time, but I, yeah, I'll end, I'll end with what Chin Wei said. Um, and if anybody else wants to discuss some of the other responsibilities that were generally covered anyway already in the Old Testament regarding mothers and their responsibility there. Um, our, our desire in our homes ought to be ultimately the glory of God in presenting what a... Uh, godly life looks like in the context of our relationships with one another. And so absolutely, the, the, the goal, the design, and the, the hope is that our families reflect godliness for his glory. Um, that means individually we have to care about that, that we want to do that in our homes, that we personally want to reflect uh, glory, the glory of God in our personal lives, and then obviously as it works its way out through our homes, that the ultimate goal is to proclaim him to show not only in the context of our immediate homes but even in the life of our body where our families gather together you know one of the first things Greg ever taught me when I first started coming here we went through a little series where the church was defined as a family of families I mean it's much more than that but it is a really a gathering of together of godly families living seeking to live godly lives for his glory and so our, our aim in our homes ought to be that if, it, if it's anything short of that I think we're probably going to have some difficulties and challenges along the way, more challenges and difficulties along the way. Um, but yeah, make it your priority in your heart, in your personal life, and then as it works its way out in the way that we order our families, that the glory of God be the thing that we are aiming at, um, not just a peaceful home, not just a, you know, um, godly children, although we want that. that the aim is look at look at what a godly family can do, um, and and particularly in our culture today, where you know I have a neighbor friend who recently just came by and said I love what you guys have here, and I go well, you haven't been inside the walls as much, but 
but but even that alone, just that sense of of you know, he lives in a very broken environment, and he sees in us a very what looks to him like an ordered home, and he yearns for that. You know, so even there, there's opportunity for the glory of God. So, any last questions? Oh, my wife raised her hand, so I have to take it. <laughs> I do have a comment. I really appreciate going all of these roles because it's so easy individually constantly to look when our families are messy and there's chaos in our home it's it's often because maybe for me in particular I'm looking at what so-and-so is not doing or I'm looking at what they're not doing and it's it's opposed to like you have laid out for us today the roles each of our roles in our family the way God has ordained it for there to be peace in our home. And it's like when my eyes get off of what my role is and what my responsibility is, then there tends to be chaos. And I just appreciate that. It goes back to, you know, taking the log out of my own eye. God has, God has given us a, a sweet prescription of how to live peaceful homes, and it does get messy, but I can always go back to the simplicity of, like, what is my role here? And how can I pray for my family members in their role? So. Yeah, that's great. Well, we'll end with that. She always has the last word. <laughs> I love you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time, Lord, and just in the interest of time, Lord, we just pray that you would uh, take, these, take this lesson, help us to really act upon it in your strength and by your help, with your help in the spirit, Lord. We thank you in your name. Amen.